Hello, everyone. Welcome to Crossroads, where faith and culture meet. I'm Rita Peters, and I'm here with my co-host, Mark Meckler. Mark, how's it going today? It's a little bit crazy this morning, i got to admit, but this is what happens when legislatures are in session all over the country. So I'm glad to step away from that and talk about this great book we're reading. Yeah, so for a little bit under a half hour, we're going to escape all of the other <laughs> busy things going on and talk about social justice. And for those of you joining us for the first time today, we are in the middle of a series of episodes on the topic of social justice. We're basing it off a great new book that I encourage everyone to pick up. You can get it on Amazon. It's called Confronting Injustice Without Compromising Truth. The book is written by Thaddeus J. Williams. And Mark, today we're covering part four of the book, which explores the question of whether our thought processes are focused on truth or tribes. And William starts off by saying, everyone has an epistemology, and that basically means a theory of knowledge. And he says, as with computer operating systems, some are better than others. Mark, would you say it's true, first of all, that everyone has an epistemology? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, each of us has our own way of looking at the world. We look at the world from our own perspective, and you really, I would say, and this is important, as a human being, you can't look at everything from every angle all the time. It's literally just impossible as a human being. So we bring to the table with us a set of prejudgments, premises, ways of looking at things. Every person does this. And so the question is, what is your operating system? How are you looking at the world? Because that's going to affect the judgments that you hold. Right, exactly. Now, I want to just um, do a tiny bit of review for the sake of people who maybe are new in the audience for this series of programs. When Williams talks about social justice, he divides it into social justice A and social justice B. So I want to define what he means by that. Social justice A is the type of justice that is based on biblical values. Social justice B is what he refers to um, when he's talking about these, you know, claims in our culture today to be causes that are all about justice. But upon closer examination, when you look at them, they're not really based upon the biblical definition of justice. So social justice A, social justice B. And he talks about the fact in this part of the book that social justice B is all about tribes thinking. And he makes the word tribes into an acronym according to these groups in society that the social justice B movement is determined to identify, root out, and fight against because they are the oppressors. And the acronym goes this way. T is for theocrats, and those would be right-wing Christians who are trying to impose their beliefs on everyone. <laughs> R is for racists. I is for Islamophobes. B is for bigots. E is for exploiters, or you might say capitalists, and S is for sexists. 
Now, Williams would agree that there is real oppression associated with those various belief systems. So it's not that he's writing them off, but the idea that he's talking about here is that according to Social Justice B, those six categories of oppressors basically explain the world around us. And that is problematic because it results in a kind of tunnel vision. Mark, do you think it's an accurate assessment of the social B movement? And have you seen that sort of tunnel vision in the advocates today for social justice B? Yeah, I think we see this all over our world. I, I would say this is currently, at least in modern mainstream media and academia and, and society at large, the social justice that is dominant. Uh, I think there are less people professing openly what I would describe, what you described as biblical social justice, and more of them professing tribal social justice. Mm -hmm. uh, so in other words, everything is looking at being looked at through the race of isms, uh, as you described, uh, phobias, Islamophobia. Mm -hmm. I, there are others that that he could have thrown in there. I mean, he was trying to create an acronym. There are a lot of them, but it's discrimination in every way, shape, or form that you can possibly imagine. That's the lens through which now modern society defines social justice, and it creates a myriad of problems. Yeah, and you know, one of the one of the biggest um, problems with the social justice B movement that Williams talks about in this part of the book is that their biggest claim is that they're inclusive, right? But it's not really inclusive at all. While it focuses on those six oppressor groups that we just talked about, there are some pretty major instances of oppression going on all around us that the social justice B movement seems to completely ignore. So, Mark, why don't you kick us off and tell us about a few of those? Yeah, I look, I think one of the most major ones, and it's sort of flipped on its head by the social justice movement, is abortion. And there's a group of human beings that are, I would argue, the most oppressed human beings on the planet today. Uh, it is the number one leading cause of death in the world today is abortion. Yeah. So the unborn are oppressed. Nobody is speaking for them, certainly in the social justice movement. Uh, and so there's incredible human life damage being done. In the black community, by the way, every year, more black babies are aborted than born. I mean, this is just a stunning statistic. Imagine what that does to a community of color that the social justice warriors claim to support, claim are oppressed. Imagine if there were more black babies born than aborted, that would change the dynamic in our in our country and in our culture today. But they don't care about unborn babies. I would argue that there are victims in the abortion movement as well, which are women who have abortions, the vast majority of them who experience pain, regret, depression, and the numbers are undeniable. And that actually goes to people having physical trauma from abortion as well. There are side effects often from abortion all of those people, the social justice movement doesn't even acknowledge they exist. A second one would be Christians. Uh, Christians are now uh, an oppressed class in our country. Our freedom of religious expression is oppressed. Uh, this is true in America. We are suppressed on social media. We're suppressed in politics. There are literally laws against Christian organizations being involved in politics. This was done to suppress the Christian perspective. 
And worldwide, Christians are under assault and Christians are killed for their faith, persecuted for their faith, churches are burned, organizations are shut down. It's going on worldwide, but you don't see the social justice B movement talking about any of this. Right. And I have to comment on um, the social justice B movement's omission of you know, the abortion industry as oppressive and, you know, really racist. I think it is a hypocrisy of the highest order. You know, Mark, it's not an accident that far more abortion clinics are located in minority neighborhoods. That's not an accident. Planned Parenthood started as part of the eugenics movement. You know, so like, why is everyone not, you know, raising Cain about that fact? Why? It's just, I've never been able to comprehend it. It is such blatant hypocrisy. And there are a few more types of injustice that are pretty much ignored by the social justice B movement. One example is the number of children who grow up in single parent homes. Statistics are crystal clear that kids who grow up without two parents in their home do worse in life on pretty much every indicator, academic success, drug and alcohol abuse, depression, you name it. But the left, who is generally the promoter of social justice B, is pretty much silent on that topic. Yeah, you know, Rita, I would add not just silent, but they actually promote the destruction of the nuclear family. We know, as you said, every statistic... There's no contrary studies. Every statistic in every area shows that kids who grow up in two-parent homes are better off. Less crime, less suicide, less depression, less drug addiction. Uh, All of these things are true, uh, and yet they promote the destruction of the nuclear family. They promote single parenthood, and single parenthood has skyrocketed in the African-American community. It's now 70%, I believe, is the number in the African-American community. Uh, In the white community, it has skyrocketed. It's gone from something like 7% to 24% in the last few decades. Uh, This is an epidemic in our country, and it is damaging people in the most severe way. And so this is one of the things that when we get tribal that happens is we take one slice of a perspective. We say we shouldn't discriminate against uh, people who are divorced or families that are not traditional. And I generally agree with that. But then we broaden that out to say, we should discriminate against the traditional. Those are the oppressors. And so we always want to take care of kids that are from single family homes. We want to support mothers from single family homes, but it doesn't mean we should hold that up as the ideal and actually put the ideal aside. That's what tribalism does to us. Yeah. And, you know, this example is just a good case of, you know, energies being applied in wrong directions. You know, if what we all really cared about was, you know, good opportunities, equal opportunities for everyone, you know, for all kids in America, wouldn't you expect to see the champions of social justice really working hard to preserve and maintain and support the family, you know, the basic unit of society and to make sure that every kid you know, to the greatest extent possible has a chance to be raised in a two parent um, family, but you don't see that at all. And yet you see all this energy put in other places where 
as we've talked about in previous programs, the the evil that they're trying to combat isn't, you know, the evidence doesn't really support it. Um, so another example of this, Mark, is the pornography industry. And this is one, you know, it's we don't like to talk about it. I don't like to talk about it. But our society should be talking about it if we're concerned about justice. The pornography industry is a $97 billion industry, often involving violence toward women and often involving exploiting children. And in addition to the oppression, uh, just, you know, straight out oppression of the individuals portrayed in pornography, the women, the children, consider too the toll it takes on the consumers of pornography. It results in depression, broken relationships, rape, domestic violence, all of this is well-documented. So, you know, why don't we hear social justice be advocates trying to do more about stopping the pornography industry? Yeah, look, because I think one of the things that liberalism has done is it's taken liberalism to the extreme and turned it into licentiousness. In other words, liberalism should be and is in, in a classical sense about the freedom of the individual, but it's not the freedom to do anything. It's to do that which is good for themselves and society. That's really what liberalism should be about and what, what freedom is really about. It's not about the ability to do anything you want. In this case, the hypocrisy is astounding to me on a single issue in there, everything you said is true, but you hear social justice be warriors talk about the exploitation, specifically the objectification of women, sexual objectification. And yet in no industry is the sexual objectification of women more profitable. I mean, that is the central premise of the pornography industry. They're objectified, they're sold as sexual objects, they are commodified. And you would think that social justice warriors would be against this. Feminists uh, writ large would be against this. And unfortunately, they're not, again, because of tribalism. And the tribe says, well, this is just free expression. Uh, they, these are just, quote unquote, sex workers. And they don't talk about what it's actually doing to the human beings involved. Yeah, absolutely. And then Mark Williams brings up one more, you know, kind of system of oppression or that results in oppression that the social justice B movement doesn't talk about or seem concerned about at all. And this one, in fact, they actively promote. And that is these far left political systems like communism and socialism. Can you explain briefly how those systems lead to oppression? Yeah, and this is one, frankly, of all of these, this probably bothers me more than anything else just because of the absolute toll. So the ideas behind socialism and communism at their core say that, you know, everybody should be equal, everything should be fair, they're trying to create a utopia. In practice, and we've been practicing this as, as a world population for a long time, for over 100 years now, this has led to the deaths of at least 100 and some estimates are upwards of 150 million people. Yeah. The system always leads to complete and total oppression. It leads to the deprivation of civil rights, of personal autonomy, of every freedom you can possibly imagine. It's exactly the opposite of what they profess is what happens from socialism and communism. We don't have an example of a successful practice of socialism or communism. 
You know, occasionally you'll have people refer to a country like Sweden and the Swedes find this very offensive. They say, we're not a socialist country. We're a capitalist country with a big social safety net. Uh, they have higher taxes than we do, but they don't believe in the centralization of the means of production, which is the definition of socialism, right? You take mm -hmm. private property away and the government runs everything and distributes everything. They don't believe in that. Uh, so it's never worked. It never will work. But the tribalism says, uh, we really like that idea. So we're going to promote that idea. And so ultimately what it leads to is death and destruction. People who are promoting utopianism uh, lead to death and destruction. It's just a horrible force on the earth. And it's rising again right now here in the United States of America. The majority of young people, the youngest generations think that socialism is a good thing. Yeah. You know, I think it's really interesting, this particular topic, because last week we talked a lot about how important it is to actually look at the facts and look at the evidence before you evaluate a system or idea. And we'll talk a little bit about more about that today. Um, but the thing is with um, socialism and communism, the evidence is so crystal clear about how you know, they do result in oppression and poverty and terrible conditions. And yet so many people in America seem to be thinking today that that's the way we should go. And I think it's a classic example of what we've been talking about because it sounds really nice to talk about everybody being equal and everybody sharing everything and taking care of everyone. So I think it's just another example of, yeah, it sounds great, but you really need to do your homework first. Right? Well, and I think we can simplify it even more and we can put that in biblical terms since that's our worldview. Our operating system is a biblical operating system is you look at the fruits Right. So the question is, what, right. what are the fruits of the ideology? What are the fruits of the thing that we're examining? And when you look at the fruits of communism and socialism around the world, their death, devastation, slavery, uh, torture, tyranny, starvation, all of those things are the consistent fruits of that system. And so you ought to ask yourself, well, why am I supporting that? What, what people will say, by the way, Rita, I hear this all the time from proponents of these systems. Well, it's never been properly executed or it's <laughs> never really been implemented. And so what I usually say to people like that is I, you know, maybe that's true. A lot of experience experiments have been done in it. How many people would you say are worth sacrificing to continue to try the experiment? Because so far it's 150 million dead. Are you comfortable with 200 million, 250 million, a billion? How many dead before you would say that maybe the system doesn't work? Yeah, right. And, you know, it's a little bit of um, hubris involved, I would say, to think that it's never been done right before, but we're going to do it right. <laughs> and it's going to turn from being oppressive to being fruitful. So again, getting us back to the um, main part of, of this chapter in the book. The point here is that Social Justice B takes an exclusive focus on a handful of ideologies that can be oppressive, used the wrong way, but it goes awry because A, it wants to identify every problem in society as a result of these six narrow ideologies without really looking at the evidence. And B, it turns a blind eye to a whole host of other types of 
injustice that Mark and I have just um, alluded to. Mark, I want to ask you about something else William says in this part of the book. His experience has been that when his Christian friends and colleagues get caught up in social justice B, they stop evangelizing. I thought that was really interesting. Why do you think that could be, and why should that make us skeptical of social justice be? You know, this goes back to an old truism that anybody who's a practicing Christian has heard, which is we're all made with a God-shaped hole in our hearts, uh, and we're going to fill that with something. Mm-hmm. And when you fill it with God, that means you are at, at some point going to evangelize. And I really want to be clear about what I mean by evangelize. It doesn't mean you're out, uh, you're a street corner preacher. I mean, good, that's a form of evangelism. But it means that you do talk about your faith when given the opportunity to talk about your faith when it's mm-hmm. appropriate. It might be in private, one on one with somebody. Uh, it, it might be at church. It might be at work. There are different ways to evangelize. But what happens with people who are social justice B warriors is this becomes their operating system. So instead of a biblical operating system or biblical worldview, they now have a quote-unquote social justice worldview. That fills for them, at least temporarily, that God-shaped hole in their heart. And the only thing that they know how to talk about and the only filter through which they see the world is this social justice filter. There really is no room for God in that filter because social justice B is a me-oriented filter. It's like, I'm the social justice warrior. I know what's best. It's my lived experience. That's actually the antithesis of Christianity. Christianity says it's all about God. This is God's world, God's rules, God's laws. God made it and all glory to God. We're not going to fix everything. We do our best to live according to God's laws and he'll work it all out. That's the opposite of being a social justice warrior. Yeah. Yeah. I thought that was, that was a really interesting point that he made. The next idea we're introduced to in this part of the book has to do with the way our brains work. And I found this really interesting as well. Williams talks about people who have phobias, for instance, an arachnophobia or is a fear of spiders. He explains that a good psychologist will help an arachnophobe ungeneralize. In other words, She'll help the person with the phobia understand that while there are some spiders that are truly dangerous, not all spiders are dangerous. And then Williams points out that tribes thinking or social justice B does the opposite of that. Can you explain that for us a little bit more? Yeah, I'll give you the most horrifying example because this is out there and widely being used. uh, And there are people like Ibrahim X. Kendi who who propose that all white people are oppressors. Yeah. And so if all white people are oppressors, that means that you have to be negative to all white people you meet. It means you have to crush them back. It means they have to admit that they're an oppressor. And what that does is it creates oppression. I mean, Kendi has actually said openly that the only way to uh, fix past instances of racism is with current instances of racism. And so this is just crushing for people. It's creating a generalization that's a negative generalization. It's bad for the people that it's being imposed on uh, in the sense that if you're a white person, now you can only be an oppressor. That's that's a bad framework to live within. It's really bad for the these tribal social justice warriors because now they walk around the world, they're afraid of, concerned by, hating, disliking every white person that they meet because those are all oppressors. So 
that generalization is creating a generalized sense of anxiety and negativity among people who hold it. And then generally speaking, whatever the negative generalization is, it's going to do that to somebody. It's having a negative effect on the people that they claim to be trying to help. Right. So yeah, huge problems with that whole methodology of generalizing. Not only is it unkind and uncaring to try to turn people into, you know, paranoid, um, suspicious and distrustful of everyone around them. Another problem with it is that it is obviously false, right? <laughs> Not every white person is an oppressor. Um yeah. And I would add, and importantly, not every person of color is a victim. I mean, this is just, right. and so also the idea of telling people, imagine telling young children, you are a victim. I, I can't imagine anything more denigrating to the mental health of a young person. You can't be successful because you live in a society where you'll always be victimized. It's inherently objectively untrue. Uh, we can give you example after example of people who are not victims and are people of color. In fact, in our society now, those people, people of color, generally speaking, are looked on favorably, even more favorably because of the social justice warriors. So this is just a terrible thing to do to human beings. Yeah. And as crazy as it sounds, like it sounds, yes, of course, it would be terrible to tell young children that they're victims. But Mark, isn't that exactly what CRT, which people want to teach in our schools, isn't that exactly what that does? <laughs> yeah. I mean, the basis of critical race theory is uh, white people are bad and people of color are good and white people are oppressors and black people are victims. They actually use this language. So it's not like we're making this up. Uh, this is just a, I mean, I really believe this is a horrible, sinful practice. I, you know, I think this is satanic. I think this comes from the devil. It's designed to divide human beings by yeah. race. And there's nothing inherently that divides us by race. As the author talks about in this book, we're all image bearers of God. It doesn't matter what color we are. It doesn't matter what gender we are. It doesn't, all of us, every one of us born is an image bearer of God, and we should treat each other that way, not differently based on our race. Absolutely. I thought it was really interesting, too, in this section that Williams specifically warns Christians on the political right against doing the same kind of generalization thing by creating chronic fear of secularists liberals, Marxists, evolutionists, immigrants, homosexuals. Mark, do you think the political right has been guilty of doing that same kind of thing? Oh, yeah, I absolutely do. And, you know, we, you and I hear it every day because we're engaged <laughs> in politics. I struggle sometimes with people on the right. Um, I think a lot of this veers into what I would call conspiracy theory. And I'll get I'll get attacked for saying this, you know, because a lot of conspiracy theories have turned out to be true. But when we have conspiracy theories that tribalize people, I, I would argue critical race theory is a conspiracy theory. All white people are bad. They're all conspiring together. System conspires to keep people of color down. That's a conspiracy theory. And the same is true if we say, like, anybody who votes for Joe Biden is a Marxist. Right? They're not. People have their reasons. People are individuals. Negative motive attribution to other people you don't know is never a good thing. Yeah. The right does it as well as the left. But I would argue, and, and I think our author would agree with this, Thaddeus would agree with this, there's a bigger problem on the left now. But I've been mm -hmm. saying for a long time, 
if the left continues to do this, the right will ultimately, just based on human nature, begin to respond in kind. And we should be very careful of that. We should not be goaded into that. Yeah. Now, Mark, Williams uh, talks about people's lived experiences and how sometimes people can get a little bit um, carried away and sort of generalized from their lived experiences. And we want to emphasize, as Williams does in the book, that lived experiences do matter. We don't write off anyone's pain or suffering. As Christians, we're called to weep with those who weep and to care for those who are suffering. The point, though, is that it is essential to use facts and reason to discover true injustice in our society and not just to have a knee-jerk reaction of labeling certain systems or people groups as oppressors or unjust without doing our homework to really understand the situations. And this leads us to William's discussion of this concept of an unfalsifiable belief. He points out that a good belief system can spell out the ways it could be proven false. And Christianity is actually one of those systems because if someone were to ever prove that Jesus was not raised from the dead, Christianity would crumble. But Mark, what does Williams mean when he describes social justice B thinking as unfalsifiable? Yeah, well, I'll give you the best example in social justice B, which is uh, about critical race theory and that white people are oppressors. So if you say that I'm not an oppressor, I've never oppressed a black person, then they will say, well, that's because you have white privilege (laughs) and and you're denying it. And that's because you're fragile. You have white fragility is what they say. Yeah. And, And so in other words, anytime you say, even about yourself, like, I'm not a racist. I've never done anything racist. Will you support racist systems? There's nothing that you could say to one of those people that would convince them that you're not a racist. And in fact, by saying you're not a racist, they say that makes you a racist. That's makes that's an unfalsifiable premise. There's nothing you could say to defend yourself. He gives the example in the book, I love this, of riding on a train and you're sitting next to somebody and that person starts to tell you that the KGB is following them. And yeah. you explain to them, well, there really hasn't been a KGB since the, the fall of the wall. And he said, well, that's exactly what they want you to think. That's what they, the paranoid guy says. And then he points to the guy sitting across from him and he says, see, that guy's a spy. And you say, well, that guy looks like a businessman reading a newspaper to me. And the paranoid person says, that's exactly the kind of a disguise that a spy would use. <laughs> and, yeah. and he goes on and on and on. And eventually... The, the paranoid guy looks at the guy and goes, well, you must be one of those KGB spies as well, because yeah. you just can't see what I see from my lived experience, quote unquote, that the spies are everywhere. So that makes you a spy. Yeah. And so when you're dealing with somebody like that, there's really nothing you can do to convince them. And, and read. it's kind of funny because I was reading this and thinking, I deal with this in politics all the time hmm. where I'm talking to people and no matter what I say, no matter what objective facts I present, I've literally had people say, it doesn't matter to me. It doesn't matter how much objective fact you present. I will not change my opinion. That's an unfalsifiable theory or premise. Yeah, that was a great explanation of that whole concept. And so uh, unfortunately, we're about out of time for this episode. But as we close, just want to encourage people 
evaluate facts, look at the research, don't just accept a label, don't let yourself be sucked into, you know, this paranoia and distrust and um, knee-jerk reaction. The evidence matters, the facts matter. And Mark, as we wrap up our discussion of part four, that actually brings us to the end of the book itself. Uh, but we're going to spend a little time next week in our last program in this series talking about some of the materials Williams provides in the appendix to the book, which is excellent. Um, and again, the book is Confronting Injustice Without Compromising truth. Mark, thanks for joining me again. Hey, today. Rita, can I add one last thing that Absolutely. I think is really important? Look, I, I want to be really clear. Racism exists. Misogyny exists. Homophobia exists. Like anything, generally speaking, there's a kernel of truth in everything that they say. And it's really important that we as Christians acknowledge this and know this. We're not saying those things don't exist, but we're saying when those things exist, if we do it tribally, if we apply those things universally and say everything is racism, then it makes it impossible for us to have our hearts open to address real racism right? or whatever real discrimination, whatever it is. When we see real injustice, we as Christians are called to deal with that injustice. That is true social justice. That's biblical justice. So what I want to make sure we don't do is we don't encourage people to just, we should ignore all this stuff because none of this stuff is true. Every one of those things we talked about, you can find examples of, and we as Christians should, as you said, weep with those people and work to correct those social injustices. You can't do that if you generalize these things. They are very specific, and we should always pay attention to objective facts. Absolutely. That's a great, very helpful clarification. Thanks, Mark. I want to thank our generous sponsors at Blue Ridge Chimney Services, Blessings Christian Bookstore, Sunshine Ministries with Christian Radio, Wishing Well Florists and Travel Services, and our friends at New Beginnings Church and Garber's Church of the Brethren in Harrisonburg. Thanks everyone for listening. If you'd like to contribute, you can make a donation to Crossroads at P.O. Box 881, Harrisonburg, Virginia 22803. I'm Rita Peters with Mark Meckler, inviting you to join us again next week for Crossroads, where faith and culture meet. Thank you for listening to the Crossroads podcast. To learn more about Convention of States, go to conventionofstates.com. 